the game turns you into someone who wants to make money. And depending on how fair you play with your uh, with your family, sometimes you're going to be more aggressive and maybe you take the money from your children. And sometimes you're going to be a little bit more friendly. And I can put you into another game and instantly you're going to show a different behavior. Welcome to the Impact Multiplier CEO podcast. I'm Richard Metcalf, founder of X Quadrant, and my mission is to help the world's top CEOs and entrepreneurs shift from incremental to exponential progress and create a huge positive impact on our world. Now, that requires you to reinvent yourself and transform your business. So, if you're ready to play a bigger game than ever before, I invite you to join us and become an Impact Multiplier CEO. How do you manage change? This is a question on the lips of almost every chief executive and entrepreneur. It becomes a huge deal, but most people are doing it wrong. Mark Poppenborg is the chief executive of Intrinsify. He works mainly in the German-speaking markets, but he's dedicated his life, his career, to understanding what makes organizations really tick and how do you change, make change happen. And here's the thing, it's not how you think. In fact, you need to ignore individuals to respect them fully. You need not to think about companies fundamentally as being people and think about them in a completely other way. You need to really understand how context impacts behavior. In this conversation, Mark gives some really valuable insights and reframes for any leader looking to lead change in their team, in their organization, or across their entire business. So hope you love this conversation with Mark. Poppenborg. Hi, Mark, and welcome to the show. Hello, Richard. Thank you very much. So I want to dive straight in. Ignore individuals. That's your mantra. It sounds like it's something from the Borg um, or from some uh, fascist state. Endure in, 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 ignore individuals. That's, what, that's your recommendation to business leaders. And again, I know that many of us would think, you know, Organizations, the heart of organizations, you know, what it's all about an organization is people. And you say, no, it's not. It's not about the people. So, so tell me more. Are you really on a secret mission to uh, turn us all into a faceless, uh, a faceless entity? What's going on? <laughs> yeah, I think on the surface, I've been criticized for that quite often for saying you have to ignore people. But you forgot to add, I mean, I know you consciously did, forgot to add the second part of the sentence, uh, which is, um, you can only respect people fully if you ignore them. And that is uh, that comes from an, an insight that is uh, how a context always shapes people's behaviors, in my experience, and also that's theory-driven. So I think uh, the larger an organization gets, the more the behavior is no longer determined by a, person, a person's personality and their characteristics, but a lot more by the context. So the way people behave in their workplace, the targets they follow, um, the interests they have, uh, the fights they fight, um, the projects they pursue or they try to stop, um, all those things, um, also you know how, how orientated they are towards the customer, has a lot to do with the surrounding they're in. And that is made up of the culture and the explicit rules, the formal structure of the organization. So let me, let me just, just check in with that. So what I'm hearing is 
that whereas we tend to think right that people they're just a certain way and this person here is just lousy customer service or this person here is not innovative what you're saying is actually that's an artifact of of the organization and not of the person yes exactly the fir- the first thing when someone describes a certain behavior to me is always what could be why would i behave in the same way why would someone else behave in the same way what is the pattern that dictates this behavior and if we go, if we jump straight to the conclusion that it's down to the person, then our object of influence will be the person. We're going to, you know, we're going to try to change that person. And I think that's highly disrespectful because we assume that it's down to them to change themselves in order for the organization to change. Okay. So that's why you say if you want to respect people, you need to ignore them in the sense of saying, don't focus on trying to change them, but look at the, the overall context. I'm going with you. Yeah, to try to understand the game that's being played. I, I love the game comparison because it's so easy to illustrate. Like if you play Monopoly, say, and you, you've probably experienced this with your family, like, you, you know, you, you almost turn into a different person, don't you? The game turns you into someone who wants to make money. And depending on how fair you play with your, uh, with your family, sometimes you're going to be more aggressive and maybe you take the money from your children. And sometimes you're going to be a little bit more friendly. And I can put you into another game and instantly you're going to show a different behavior. And I think this is quite, a, a lot of people can associate with this when they change departments or when they go to a different company, they can almost witness how they change personality as well. They can, they can see, or when you go into a different context during the day, if you, you know, if you pick up your phone, you're speaking to your partner, instantly you, you feel like you're someone else to a certain degree, some less, some more. So the context has a deep influence on who we are even um, and especially on how we behave and I think that's often overlooked and is a massive leverage if you compare it to all the personal development programs that are being you know just poured out onto organizations but a lot of money being spent often fueling uh, cynicism and frustration with employees yeah that's yeah so what I'm hearing is is that the yeah this is a system at play and, and and it's really fascinating because I see it so many times that people are saying, you know what, I just can't get good quality people, right? Or uh, I've inherited the team and they're just performing in a certain way. There's a great story that I know. I think it was um, who, who did this? It was, it was a story of Navy SEALs, right? And they they took two teams uh, in in, the, in that week of Navy SEAL training where you basically it's a nightmare week. They, nobody gets any sleep. They're in groups. They have to do endurance test after test and. And the ones who, the, the top team always gets the next exercise off. They get to rest for 10 minutes and get some blessed rest. And the other, the losing team each time has to double down and do punishment and, you know, extra pressures and everything. And uh, one team was always coming last and getting, you know, falling even further behind because they're even more tired. And the guy who was basically just allocated amongst his peers to be the leader was like, this is not fair. You gave me the, you know, these are losers, you know, like, why have I got the team of losers? But this team over here is always winning. Well, he just got a lucky team, right? So they swapped over the leaders. And in the very next session, the bottom team came first. Um, And now the top team didn't actually come last because by that stage, they'd already got enough momentum and kind of self-understanding to not do that. And I think it's just a really interesting thing that so often we assume it's the people, whereas actually the context is so important. And it's really hard to see that, isn't it? Because you you can only see behavior. You can't look into people's minds. So you have to, you're, you're forced to derive your assumptions about people's nature 
from the behavior you witness. And, and I think that's a down, that can turn into a downward, downward spiral or even a self-fulfilling prophecy because if I account for the fact that I think these people are lazy, they don't like working, don't like taking responsibility, et cetera, I'm going to put structures in place that account for that belief, which takes even more responsibility away from them. And that turns into what we, I'm sure you've witnessed a million times in big companies, where we put the reaction to every impression of unresponsible employees is putting in place more measures that lead to central governance. So you you know you end up with you end up with sales targets, with commission systems, with um, appraisal systems, and obviously they all catch people's attention and people start orientating their intention towards the inner works of the system rather than looking at what the customer actually needs and you're kind of almost you're creating a, a framework which feeds the belief that you've already had in the first place and it just becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy yeah it's, it's a yeah it's a, yeah you say it, it com- comes so obvious right the number of things like every it's almost like there is a certain level of mid to senior management in a lot of corporations whose role or see their role as building this machine, right? These systems to control people. And the problem with that is that machines are great in a kind of a static environment, right? But they're very bad at adapting to changing situations right um uh, because they're configured in a certain way and i think that's what happens in organizations right if you see organizations as organisms that are evolving and, and depending on each other and have got all these interconnections then things look very different but i suppose um sounds like politics right like lots of people write laws very few people remove laws so you end up just with this accumulation I think what you're saying is it, it comes from a place of super important and deep insight. Like when I started, I, I'm one of these guys who came out of uni and went straight into a small consultancy. So I wasn't, I didn't know what I was talking about, but I was advising general managers and what they were meant to do, right? It was a complete disaster. I feel, I feel ashamed for it in hindsight. Obviously, I learned more than they did. And my whole upbringing and my whole um, indoctrination, let's call it, that I got from uni was organizations are machines and they're controllable. And in order to control them, I need good governance and central governance. And based on that belief, I was building my entire, and we were, you know, as a company, we were building our entire consultancy practice. And that led to the the same results every time. Every time we were going there and trying to build better measurement systems, you know, better KPIs, better processes, um, and then make people stick to those and completely overseeing that for what you just described as, you know, dynamic environment, new problems that aren't, which you can't solve on past knowledge that is baked into rules and processes and checklists and stuff like that, requires ideas. So you need a framework in which people can take responsibility. It's not just nice for people. It's a, it's a necessity for value creation to to, to face the dynamic value creation challenges that companies are, uh, you know, are, are, are faced with today. And what, what we were doing is we were implementing methods on a micro level and, and missing the bigger picture, missing that it needs a framework that gives empowerment, gives um, responsibility to people who make or need to make the decisions on a daily basis. And there's so many little, you know, little 
um, management instruments to take that away all the time. You've, you know, you've got you've got all these project management systems in place. You've got investment planning. You've got budgets to meet. You've got targets to meet. You've got appraisals to 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 look forward to or to um, to dread, and and all of those things add to the result that we then witness, which is a disengaged workforce that is optimizing within a system rather than towards a customer. So I think the leadership challenge here, and we're going to get into in a minute, I think, into what, you know, your work, and, and we can talk very practically about what would you do if you find you have this new organization, you find you have some of these issues coming up. I think we want to go there. But what I want to touch with is as a leader, there is a deeper leadership challenge at play, which is, do I want to be a leader that does the right thing and releases people for impact? Or do I want to cover my ass and just create predictability to deal with my own inner doubts and fears and concerns and sense of scarcity? And I really think it's important because a lot of this stuff is like, I just need to control people, have a system, you know, so that I can go to my boss, so that I can cover my, you know, all this stuff. And some, some of it's coming from, you know, probably coming from the right place in the sense of wanting to improve things. I think both, both perspectives, they want to do the right thing, right? They're coming from good intentions. Yep. Yeah, they wanted the right thing. But there's also like a sense, but there's also this sense of, um, yeah, but you know, what would happen if? Uh, how many rules in companies are, 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 are implemented for the, you know, for the bottom 1%? Yeah, they're 1% really disengaged. And the problem is that's not a systems and process issue. That's a management issue. Like, deal with those 1% of people in whatever way, but don't introduce systems. It's like airport security, right? It's like, but their lives are at stake, so we get it. But airport security is, you know, there's 99.9% of people who never, should really never need to do anything on airport security because they're fine. But everyone has to go through it because you've got to catch the, the 0.1%. But in a company... That's not necessarily the case, right? Uh, and actually, think of all the friction and 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 problems that we create. So let's kind of like let's kind of turn the turn the turn the tables here and go a bit forward. So, if I was a leader, going, you know what? Yeah, like my I'm not seeing the level of innovation, customer service, ownership that I want for my team, and I'm starting to think, yeah, it's them. Have challenged me, and and what what would I what could I do differently? So. I think one one little thing I want to add to what you just said in all, before I go into that is that I want to double down on the on the statement. It, they both come from good intentions, right? I think managers are always trying to do the right thing, but we always act from a place of our inner theories. So if I believe an organizational is a controllable machine, I'm going to put things in place that follow that conviction. So I don't think it's it's necessarily down to people's mindset or their inner emotions. It's more about understanding the mechanics, if you if you like, of, of a system, how they actually work. If I've got those insights and and you know they're 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 readily readily available, but they're not abundant in management literature, then I can act differently. And what I would suggest is you take a real problem. So a lot of companies start like big projects like agile transformation, digital transformation, without actually having looked into the problem that that might solve on a concrete level. So I would always suggest take a real problem and a real problem I define as something that is either directly or potentially threatening your business. Are you losing customers to your competition competitors? Um, are you too slow? Is your quality declining? Is your image being hurt? Whatever 
external reference that has a, an influence on how your business can perform. And I would address one of these specific problems and ask myself, how can these insights that we just spoke about be explained by a, a framework that is in place and is encouraging the wrong behavior? Can I just pick up on that? This idea of the real problem, I think it's, it's, it's a key one because I often see people operate in the level of concepts, which you mentioned, digital transformation is a concept. Innovation is, is a concept in a way, right? I mean, these things, we think that we think we know what they are, but until we boil them down to what is the actual thing that I want to change and what, what am I seeing right now and the impact that's having, almost like on a video film, and then what do I want to be seeing and the impact that that's having. And I think until we kind of can make it something, I say it passes the video camera test, can I actually observe it somewhere, then we can fix it. Yeah, I like that. Yeah, I like that. I often say, like, if, 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 you know, if we get approached by big companies and they, they ask a question like you do, like, like you did just now, um, I would say, in which department, you know, where in your, which product segment, where is there a concrete problem that is causing you real, a real threat and, and that you need to address? Why you, you know, you, you're not sleeping badly because you are thinking about, can I implement digital methods? What, what makes you wake up too early or not fall asleep? What's nagging you is that the, the very thing that you're going to discuss at your next board meeting and the one after and the one after, which is really vital to the company, you know, a true problem, as you say. And that's where I would come from. And then one very functional tool that we've played around with it a lot and had a lot of experience, a lot of failures, a lot of successes is what I call a safe haven project. So you, you isolate a certain area of the company around the problem that you're trying to address, the true problem. And by isolating it is almost like you are creating a new playing field in which new, not only explicit, formal structural frameworks can be put in place, but also where a new culture can emerge. Because uh, culture is, in, in my view, is, is always, it doesn't stick to the people, it sticks to the context. That's why we experience a different culture when we play Monopoly, as opposed to playing another board game. So it's, you know, it's, a, it's, a, it's a reflection of the system. So if I create a safe haven in which other formal structures can be put in place where I can take away certain management instruments, create a space of freedom where decisions can be made on the operational level, then a new culture can also emerge from that. But in order for that to happen, I need a safe boundary. I need to know as an employee, as I step into this new game, I'm not going to be stabbed in the back by doing something differently. Um, and and, and that, that requires a higher level of management buy-in that creates that organizational border. Um, it's a bit like if you want to, I often make this example, if you want to play, if you want people to play ice hockey on a field hockey um, pitch, it, you can't just ask them to do that and maybe put out, put a, put out some, you know, a few ice surfaces and, and, and put some um, the appropriate closing on them. You're going to have to set up a new field where ice hockey can actually be played on. Otherwise, you're expecting people to behave in some kind of schizophrenic way, right? Because they have to do both at the same time and that's impossible. So you need to create, my opinion, you need to create organizational boundaries and if you build them around the problem that you're trying to solve, then new behavior can emerge. So can you give an example perhaps from, you know, from your own experience or from a client or whatever that you work with? So what would be an example just to help me kind of picture this in my own mind of what this safe haven project might look like? Yeah, so 
client we had recently, they were trying to explore new ways of uh, video marketing. And their existing patterns were very, you know, they were very re reliable. But also it was the beaten path. You know, everyone was acting upon that. Everything was geared around the way things were done. All organizational practices were, the culture was. And they were tr they've been trying to implement these new ideas for quite a while. And they were attached to certain people who had these ideas and were trying to drive them. But they were running out of fuel every time because they're running against these organizational boundaries. A lot of those boundaries were implicit, you know, were cultural. So what we did is we asked the general manager of that unit to help us create a safe haven project, which means uh, legitimize an area within that business where these employees were able to act independent of what has been practiced in the past, full-time, you know, not like a lot of projects are done on the side, which often violates the entire idea of the boundary. So full-time, the core team at least, and their, their, their only task was to solve this problem. And the problem was we are able to reach more people in a more compelling way if we use different marketing practices, but we don't know how they need to be governed. We don't know how they need to be organized. So we're going to give you a complete free space in which you can explore that. But the condition is we need results. This is not like a, an experiment in which we allow you just to play around and, and then report to the board and the board makes new decisions. This is an actual live experiment that is that its its learning environment is the market. It's not it's not some internal reference. And what they did is they went in, um, they started this project, and immediately, and this is very typical, there was a really high friction, right, between the existing practices and in this existing environment and that team. There was a high cultural clash, and that's where it becomes interesting because a lot of consultants or managers then want to try to resolve those conf conflicts because they think they are a bad thing but they are inherent to two games being played in parallel so and what we were able to do is to to comfort the, the general manager and make him understand that this is a natural we we could we told him before this is going to happen right um so let the conflict be conflict and it's going to run out of fuel i think that's a key point right it's normalizing the challenges because if people don't expect these things to come, they feel, oh, my word, it's going wrong. This is not working. It's being rejected. Whereas if people actually know this is part of the process, then you can kind of actually almost look forward to it. Oh, great. We're at this phase now. Great. <laughs> it's a bit like with personal challenges, right? I think it's similar. You, you try to adapt a new behavior, adopt a new behavior, and um, you, you, you fight those inner fights. Absolutely. I was talking with a client yesterday. And before I say this, I'm going to give his example, but I've been through the same thing this year myself, right? When we're on the transformational path, when we want to play a bigger game than we've ever played, when we want to multiply our impact around right, the type of this podcast, there gets a point where there's something deep in us that needs to shift because the old rules are not going to apply for us. And we have to always have our own, our own safe haven project. And there is a moment when it doesn't seem to be working because we almost well we're changing our game is the same language as actually the one you've, you've been using and it's not working because the old game's no longer working <laughs> because we're breaking the rules but the new game isn't quite working either yet because we're still in that phase and i had to encourage him yesterday say it's okay you're doing a great job this is this is actually encouraging because 
you're going to get the breakthrough if you keep going in this way. And it's at that point. It wouldn't be a true challenge, would it, if it wasn't associated with, or it wouldn't be a true breakthrough, let's say, a true innovation if it wasn't uh, accompanied by, by um, friction. Yeah, and, and you know, we tend to think, you know, growth, it's like this. You know, like, I like drawing the exponential curve, great. But we know that the reality is like this. <laughs> it goes back, it, it changes. And that's what we need to, um, at least what I find we need to hold on to in those moments. Yeah, and that is a leadership capacity, being, being able to. And this is where I feel like theory really helps because if you know this is going to happen, if you, know, if, you, if you understand the patterns of change, it's much easier not to take that on personally, but to distance yourself from that and say, right, this is, this is what's actually going on here. I knew this was going to happen and I can tolerate it because it's part of the, the process. I hope you're enjoying this conversation. This is just a quick interlude to remind you that my book, Making Time for Strategy, is now available. If you want to be less busy and more successful, I highly recommend that you check it out. Why not head over to makingtimeforstrategy.com to find out the details. Now, back to the conversation. Okay, so we've got a safe haven project. So we've taken a real problem, got a safe haven project. We've kind of anticipated the the rejection from the system or the challenges that are going to come up. Um, anything else that you would recommend on this journey? I mean, I've, I've, I've implicitly, or, or on a, in a side note, I've already mentioned one thing that I think is crucial is when you, any behavior that, that you witness as a, as a uh, in senior management, as a senior manager, I would, uh, it's, it's a great exercise to sit down and write, and I mean literally write down how can the system that we have in place explain this behavior? How could I see this as a result of the framework that I've created, or at least that I am passively legitimizing? Um, you know, I, I spoke to, um, to board members of a bank recently, and we were talking about all these management instruments I was, I was listing earlier, you know, all these appraisal systems and, and, and commission systems and everything. And they hadn't even considered that they are the people who could make a change and you know get rid of these or at least amend them because it's such a it's almost it feels like it's god given you, you know you climb up the ladder you end up in in board in a board and you 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 start administrating something that's been there forever and that you think will be there forever but it's those frameworks that you can actually change so often the, the senior management I work with isn't aware of the fact that they can actually influence those frameworks and change them. And it's a much easier route than trying to change the people or changing the culture, which is impossible anyway, directly at least. Um, so I would say it's a great exercise to sit down and explain behavior, not as a consequence of people's motives, but as a consequence of the, the context. And then you can selectively play around. You know, you can you can, for three months, you can switch off certain instruments and see what happens. I mean, you know, behavior shaping instruments, pe people run after their targets. Of course they do. The next appraisal is, is due. Of course, I'm going to account for that in my behavior. Of course, I'm going to act politically if politics is at play, right? So if it, the more you take that into account, the more clearer you can see why a certain behavior is, is uh, so abundant. Yeah. And, and actually, if you don't do that, you end up as a leader in victim thinking, poor me, I can't work with these people. They're no good. They're not doing what they need to do. 
right? Whereas it's empowering to say, I can control this system, which is going to naturally encourage different modalities of behavior. So let me ask you, what would your checklist be, Mark, right? If you were, you know, what would be like three, four, five um, things like, okay, how is the system explaining this behavior? What You mentioned targets. That's one thing, right? Look at targets. What other things might we want to just consider in that thought process? I've got a list and I've literally got it open here on my desktop background um, because it's such a common topic is um, all the little things that are in place that we often, we don't, we overlook their detrimental impact, right? So 360 feedback, people think it's great. What I think it creates is a, a 24-7 observatory, which makes me as an employee constantly pay attention to how might I be graded or judged by my superior, by my peers, and by my, um, by my employees. Of course, that's going to have an influence on my behavior. Do I want that? Do I want that uniformity? Do I want to judge people by that criteria? Assessment centers, um, balanced scorecards, uh, cost center thinking, and all the all the um, time tracking that's attached to that. Uh, signature policies, um, job title madness, um, sales targets, um, travel policies. Um, you know, you were talking about how often things are made for one percent. Uh, I think travel policies are often put into place because someone at some point in time traveled in an unacceptable way, and then. From there, you build this insane system, right? <laughs> that everyone has to adhere to. And it, the root cause of all of that was one one guy probably bringing you in a two million project, but flying first class. And because it's treated separately in the head, yeah, you got us that great project, but <laughs> but he traveled first class, and that's that's a bit of scene, isn't it? So we need a rule for that. And then that rule isn't enough, and the next one comes into place. So you asked for a concrete checklist. I would say go through these management practices and ask yourself rigorous, rigorously, which ones do we really need and which ones really help evaluation? Let me add one and one little thing. And I'm not, I'm not suggesting that all of them are bad in general. Uh, what I'm suggesting is that there is, and you mentioned earlier, there's a divide in value creation that we often overlook. One is, I call it routine work. And routine work still requires all that Tayloristic management approach that we've been so, that's the foundation of our past success. And then there's creative work, which you can only master if all those internal references don't stand in your way. If you can fully focus on what it's really about, and that requires a completely different organizational principle. So it's not that they're generally bad, they're selectively bad. And that's, I think that's one thing that management can focus on as a first step. Yeah, I think that's a great point, this tension between the creative uh, work that we need to do and then all this kind of, uh, all the structures that we've asked to comply with and, and how, yeah, does one actually get in the way of the other and when? What comes to my mind is this idea of the via negativa, right? Which is, you know, rem success by removal, right? Success by removing things. And we often don't go there. We think what we need is more uh, more stuff, like a new rule, like a, a meta overall controlling policy for all the other policies we have or something. And perhaps sometimes, right? But probably there's much more power by simplifying and by saying, you know, what, what, what's no longer serving us here? What's actually getting in the way? Um, 
Yeah, I, I think CEOs should be applauding their managers by removal, for removal rather than for addition. I, I, to- I totally agree with you. Yeah, because, yeah, um, fascinating. So, so Mark, um, I know that you run a business called Intrinsify that I guess does this kind of stuff or helps companies with exactly this this question. So, tell me, like, how what your goals are for that business? You know, how do you want Intrinsify to multiply its impact over the coming years? You know, what what would breakthrough success look like for you? We, we've got a we've got a. Um... Um, a description of a future state um, that that reflects what I what I think you are asking, which is if um, if uh, we operate mainly in the German speaking world, right? So um, this the company's based in Germany. I'm, I'm, I happen to be half English and I live in England, but that's that's just a coincidence, really. And what we see in the future is that if a a management team is reflecting on the way they run their business and they want to educate their managers on a new way of thinking, then we're witnessing this conversation, right, in the board. And one guy says, oh, we should send them to, um, do you know St. Gallen? You know, the, the, the famous Swiss management school and or many schools that are based there. It's, you know, in Germany, that's one of the go-to places for, for management education. Um, what I would love is if after one of the board members has said, well, we should send them there. That's what everyone does. Then at least two others say, hold on, uh, have you not heard of Intrinsify? You know, that, that is, that is the, the real reference today. That's the institution that you need to, to learn from because that's a, a refreshing new and necessary view on how organizations should be run. So what we're trying to do is become a bit of an authority um, and we we are already fortunately um, a lot of people know us at least within the agile scene and the and the kind of um, transformational scene. Um, but ideally, one day uh, we will be an authority where it, it becomes normal to to look for advice um, or training uh, in in um, in the in the you know in this kind of field of what we call system theory, and ideally with us. And we're also trying to push that that topic forwards because what we're talking about here is is a lot of it is fed by um, a theory that is based on a, a, a German sociologist called Niklas Luhmann who passed away in 1998. Not well known outside the German speaking world, but um, you know he, a lot of the, his messages and his insights are in line with say what Deming says, for example. You know, 94% of the problems that you have in a system are actually caused by the system rather than the people. It goes a bit beyond that, but it's you know similar outcome, and uh, we want to we want to advertise that thinking. We want to get people to understand that there's a different way of looking at businesses that is a lot more fruitful, uh, and we can see that in practice. You know, look at WL Gore, um, look at Southwest Airlines, uh, look at uh, Toyota. If you look at these businesses through this lens, you will find a lot of the stuff that we've been talking about. It's a it's a it's a it's a high performance organizational principle that works in today's dynamic markets, and we're just, we're just trying to advertise that. We're trying to get that into the world and and get people to talk about it. Fantastic! And so, as you you work on that uh, to become that authority with that extra reach uh, over and above what you currently have, what's the personal stretch for you? So, 
how do you what do you how do you need to shift if you want to multiply your own impact in, as a leader, right? Because we always get in the, the way in some sense of our own of our own goals, right? What's if you look inside, what's gonna have to, you know, what's the growth edge for you as you multiply your impact? I think one of my and we which is actually working that with a with a consultant ourselves at the moment, one of my or our uh, but definitely also my um constraints is that we have always been very reluctant to to actively advertise we've we've always come from that philosophy you know you, you need to you need to farm you shouldn't hunt um so we produce content and we sometimes become a bit self-serving we we you know we we talk about the theory a lot um we love the theory behind it it becomes a bit circular sometimes i think we're not addressing imminent needs that are dis- a CEO has or people who make important decisions in the business. We don't understand them enough. Although we've worked with them a million times, we don't understand their needs enough. And we always come along this theoretical route that once they get it, they find very insightful and very useful. And they they can draw a lot of benefit from it for their business. And we've seen, you know, the impact it has. But it's a very counterintuitive entry it's 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 difficult to to get into this thinking and i think we're, we're not we're doing ourselves a disservice by by making it too abstract and i have a tendency to always go down that route despite having worked you know in the shop floor many times and and um and i think we need to be a bit more aggressive might be the wrong word because it sounds too pushy but uh, i think we can we, we we would benefit from taking a few shortcuts on explaining the bigger picture and and rather going straight into you know benefits you can draw tomorrow um from from as a as a decision maker and and i struggle with that like it's it's i it's almost like a guard that i'm putting up you know no 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 hold on you need to you need to understand the theory first you you can't just march off and 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 go about your daily business you've come back here you know we we need to work this out first and I think that we stand in our own way by by doing that, and uh, we need we need to reach people's needs more directly. Yeah, it sounds like uh, sounds like Steve Jobs feeling he he would need to explain how computers worked before he sold one. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit like that. No, that's a good. I think that's a very good comparison. And it feels I don't know. It's it's some kind of righteousness thing, you know. I I I want to prove that we have the right theory or something that it makes sense and. It's a, probably a pretty deep um, flaw that I need to overcome. Well, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, I'm again, I'm, I'm a sucker for a good theory as well. I, I love to kind of go through that in order to then bring focus to my own action. But not everybody works that way. And a lot of people, they just want like, just show me something that works. And then once they do that, they go, oh, yeah, I'm curious, why does that work? But it, we don't always come from that place. I suppose what I'd be asking you if I was... And it's very well be to say, well, I'm curious as to, uh, you know, what, what, what's the system going on with Intrinsify that leads you to continually, um, <laughs> continually have that behavior, right? Um, right. Yeah. 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 That would be a very legitimate question. <laughs> because yeah, you might have a anxiety, but it sounds like it's not just you, right? It's your colleagues as well who are perhaps going that way. So, you know, perhaps you need to uh, incentivize them to push back against your uh, theoretical instincts uh, <laughs> or something. Yeah, we're getting better at it um, by putting, you know, people in place and, and 
giving them more authority to to make those decisions override certain patterns that we have. Here's just here's an idea, and you again, what do I have very little background in but one thing I always love to say is like sell the experience and not the theory, right? Not the concept, and that's why you know whenever I yeah, I try not to talk about what I do. I just say to people, well, should, we, should we do some, something together? You know, let's just spend a couple of hours together. And then, and then you've got an experience of what I do rather than me talking conceptually about what the benefits might be. Uh, and perhaps it's something similar. You know, you can say, well, let's have a, you know, take this, one, this kind of issue. You know, do you have people in your company who have got this issue? You know, they're not, you know, one of your video camera issues. And then let's just, examine what the root causes of that might be for an hour boom yeah i i 100 agree intellectually i've got to that point otherwise i wouldn't be able to talk about it with you but the instincts still override yeah, that yeah it's fascinating isn't it it's getting there <laughs> yeah and, and the other thing that's fascinating about this is more general is it's because we attach a label to our forehead and so the way that you show up as the way we all show up with some kind of label so in your case it might be you know you know like leading edge thinker on this topic or something right yeah something like that yeah and so because you you come with that label it's like well i now need to show that i'm a leading edge thinker by telling you about my thinking and so when we come with that kind of almost professorial identity i need to show you that i'm equal to all these other thinkers management thinkers or whatever then probably our behavior then falls out of that identity and it's interesting to say, well, what if that became a tool in the toolbox? There's a moment when you can reach in and pull that out. Yeah, there's times when I want to be this, you know, high-end intellectual management thinker. But overall, there's a bigger mission that I'm on, a bigger identity that I want to absorb. And that's now a tool in the toolbox. It might be interesting just to think about what that, what that other label would be for you. Yeah, I totally agree. And at least it can always be my organization, right? Because we have different roles. We've got different strengths. So as we grow, it's, it becomes a lot easier to um, let the people who have a more practical approach shine in the right moment and, and use my label when we need it. Um, and what I find so cynical almost about it is that I can obviously use my own theory to explain this behavior. It's, you know, it's, it's a bit circular in that sense. Like what you just said about the label, there's system theory is, is, is great in explaining why that happens. So I should be very aware of it. Yeah, exactly. Great. Well, Mark, it's been a fascinating conversation. If people want to get in touch with you, uh, how do they do that? If they if they speak uh, German, they will find it very easy. Uh, I have a my English actually. Oh, sorry, my website is actually also in English. But um, uh, I I'm actually planning on starting to publish a lot of my content on Twitter in English. But other than that, most of my content so far there's a few YouTube videos in English, but most of it is. Is, uh, is in German. Because I have a fairly unique name, it's very easy to find me. Got it. Perfect. And then your, your business is intrinsify.com? Uh, D-E. D-E. Intrinsify.de. Great. Perfect. Well, um, Mark, it's been a pleasure. Uh, it's been a, a fun uh, geeking, geeking out on some of the theory, uh, definitely. Uh, although staying actually quite, quite practical as well, I think, for, for many leaders here on what might they actually do when they see these behaviors in their organizations and how might they start to go about thinking about those uh, differently. So appreciate it and uh, look forward to uh, following along as you continue to build out Intrinsify to being the, the leading authority in the German-speaking world. Let's hope so. Thank you very much, Richard. Well, that's a wrap. If you received value from this conversation, 
please do leave us a review on your favourite podcast platform. We'd deeply appreciate it. And if you'd like to check out the show notes from this episode, head to xquadrant.com slash podcast where you'll find all the details. Now, finally, when you're in top leadership, who supports and challenges you at a deep level to help you multiply your impact? Discover more about the different ways we can support you at xquadrant.com.